Well, you guys, uh, you get me again this week, uh, uh, next week, a week from today, actually right about now, I'll be on a plane um, heading to Atlanta, and then from Atlanta, I fly to uh, Amsterdam, and then from Amsterdam, I fly to Arusia, and I'll be two weeks in Tanzania, uh, a little over two weeks, and then flying back. So um, next Sunday and Monday, if God will do this, I'm asking him to have all of my believing friends to pray for me. I'm, you know, I'm not afraid when, you know, any of the, anything else on the trip, it's just getting on those darn planes and flying for eight-hour legs, you know, so I'm still, still not sure about that, but just be in prayer. Um, pray that the gospel goes forth. Um, we will have opportunity to ministers anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people a day, uh, our team will, and just that the gospel will go forth and people come to Christ. The uh, pastors will be encouraged and established and trained and just to be able to keep the work going. So I'm really excited about the opportunities. God would, would, uh, would remind you to please pray for us. Um, at this time, let's just go ahead and go to prayer before we walk in the text. Father God, I... I do pray, God, that, that your word goes forth. Father, your word, and it, it describes who you are and all of your majesty and your glory. It describes that you are a compassionate and caring God. A father who demonstrated his love, Father, when we were not in a, in a state to, to help ourselves, yet, Father, you demonstrated your love towards us while we were even in our sins. And the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that he, that he died for us. And so, Father, this morning I pray that as I kind of walk into chapter 11 of John and as we've been discussing belief and unbelief, as, as we've been discussing doubt, to be honest, Father, many of us struggle with doubts and uncertainty and unbelief. Some of us may be struggling, Father, even today, for belief and, and even to be saved, to believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, to believe that he gives life. Some of us, Father, we're just struggling our daily walks, whether it's because of things that have happened to us in our life and the pains of life or just the difficulties of work or the busyness of all the activities we find ourselves in. And yet, Father, <clears throat> sometimes we lose sight of how faith works just in our basic walk. So today, Father, strengthen us, your people. Father, I pray as I always do, I, I pray, God, that, um, man, you go past all of the shortcomings and the, and the iniquities and the sins of the servant and that you would speak to us, Father. We are your people. And today, God, I pray that you would speak to us that we would not be a people that wander about in unbelief, but that, Father, we would be a people that walk in confidence, in faith, in the truth of your word, in the light of who you are. So, Father, guide us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We will be looking at a large section of scriptures, so I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard this morning. Um, uh, I, 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 I was looking at this and I was thinking, man, all the different, different ways to kind of go through this, but we're going to just be reading large sections of scripture. I believe in the word of God, that it's powerful. It, it's alive. It's able to divide soul and spirit, and it's able to go out and do everything that God accomplishes. So the times I'll just be reading passages of scripture to describe the story. 
But you know, I've been telling you since I first started a few months ago, actually on these Sundays when I've had an opportunity to teach, I've been, I've been going through the Gospel of John. I've been dealing with, with, with doubt. I've come to the realization that we all struggle with, with doubt and unbelief. And John was seeing that kind of an influx in the church. It had been some time now since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now false theology had been kind of seeping into the church. And doubts about who Jesus was had been seeping in. People were starting to go back to, the, the Jews were starting to go back to Judaism and walking away from the faith. And John writes this letter and he tells us exactly why in John chapter 20, verse 35. He says, I write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in him. Very powerful statement. In the recognition of understanding that what we believe is how we find life. That we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That we would believe that he's the Son of God. And by believing, we would have life in him. And so today, when I think through this passage and I look at John chapter 11, it's, it's kind of a turning point because from this point on, we're looking at the Passion Week. He's in the upper room and he's, he's headed to the cross. John doesn't record any other, other than the signs that he's done in this, in this book from this point on. And as you think about it, John began this letter and he dealt with the very prospect of who Jesus was. He said in, in chapter one, verse one, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He establishes right off the bat the eternality of the one that we call Jesus. He says that he was in the beginning and he was God. He was there and he goes on and he describes other things that he, that he was a creator as well. But down in verse 14 of that chapter, John then says, and the word became flesh. John up to that point could have been talking about anything else. He could have been talking about logos or reason or anything else, but now he's put, he's put actual flesh. He's put, he's put an actual person, the person of Jesus Christ, and the word became flesh. And he later goes on in that same chapter and he says, and he dwelt among us and we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father. John is making sure that we understand that Jesus just wasn't, just wasn't a, a great leader, where he wasn't just a great teacher, where he wasn't just someone who came along and did great things, but he was sent of God. And God was in Christ, in the world, calling people to himself. He was calling you, and he was calling me to himself. And John goes on, and he describes John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, that many of the, of the, of the Jews would, would have honored him and acknowledged him. And, and here John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. John the Baptist looks and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. This is God's Lamb. This is God's sent one. This is God's anointed one who takes away the sins of the world through his, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then, and then the Apostle John just continues on and, and he describes Jesus turning water to wine. We get a, begin to get a little glimpse that this was not just any, anybody. This, there's somebody, something special about this person that John's describing. In chapter three, he walks in and we find Nicodemus, a Pharisee who, who comes to Jesus by the cover of night because he had been seeing these things that Jesus had done and he wondered, surely this man was from God. And so he comes to Jesus and, and he talks to Jesus and Jesus tells him, you must be born again. 
which just really threw Nicodemus for a loop. And Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That Jesus was the one sent. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world was already on its path to condemnation because of the iniquity that was in them. Because of that sin nature that has, has held us and, and gripped us in its clutch and chained us in life. That we might not know righteousness. We're no a holy and righteous and just God. That we would not know him. And it keeps us from, from that. But Jesus says he's come that he might set us free. In chapter four, it's interesting because now we see Jesus, a single rabbi, talking to a woman, a Samaritan of all things, can you believe? At a well. And the disciples come upon it and they're amazed. And Jesus has a discussion and her question is, do we worship on this mountain or that mountain? And Jesus says, the time has come and is now here that you would neither worship on that mountain or on this mountain. You wouldn't worship in that building or this building. You don't worship on this spot or that spot, but you worship in spirit and in truth. There's a new life. There's new truth in the sense of coming to Christ. And he continues on. And in chapter five, we see him healing a man who was lame. And in chapter six, we see that, that, that amazing story of Jesus feeding 5,000 from, from just the five loaves of bread that a boy brings and a couple of fish. And he gives thanks and he begins breaking until when they are all full, there's still 12 baskets of food left over. What an amazing story that Jesus is the giver and the sustainer of life. And, and they begin to follow him. And Jesus says, you don't follow me because of the work I've done. You follow me that you might be full. You think in following me, you don't have to worry about, about working and feeding. You think I'm gonna provide that because they were thinking physically. But Jesus said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, right? Oh man, that seems so harsh and difficult. And yet what he was saying was that he was saying, unless... You eat of me, you learn of me, you grow in me, just as you eat bread to survive and you drink to survive. To survive spiritually, you need Christ, is the picture he was drawing out. And John continues on in his argumentation in the Gospel of John, and he, in chapter eight, they begin to challenge who Jesus' father was. I mean, they called him some bad names, saying he doesn't know who, he was born out of wedlock. Can you believe that? And they're making all kinds of accusations. And Jesus says, no, my father, my God, he and I are one. He sent me. In fact, he comes to a place in the end of the chapter eight and he says, I am. An amazing statement because in, Genesis, in Exodus chapter, in, uh, in chapter three, I believe it was in the Exodus when God was calling his people out of bondage and Moses, he was calling him to lead his people and Moses is nervous and he says, well, who do I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am has sent you. That's what you tell them. And so it became known as the name of God. And now Jesus says, I am identifying with the God who called Israel out of bondage and delivered his people. Jesus says, I am. And they picked up stones ready to throw at him ready to stone him, ready to kill him. In another case where they were ready to stone Jesus because of the things he, see, he taught, he, they, Jesus asked him, he says, why, do you, why are you ready to stone me? Why are you doing this? 
Because of the works I've done? No, not because of the works, but because you, being a man, claim to be God. And Jesus said, I've performed these miracles, these things that I've done. They testify that the Father has sent me. And he walks into chapter 9, to me, one of the amazing chapters of this book. And he goes to a man born blind and he heals him, he gives him sight. Nobody had ever done that before. Nobody had ever healed. In fact, there's no recorded miracle of any of the disciples healing someone born blind. In the Old Testament, you can look at some messianic passages and there talks and talking about the God in those days, he will give sight to the blind. In the Jewish mindset, they should have known that when they saw him giving sight to a man born blind, that this is the one who was sent from God. That this is the Messiah, this is the sent one. In fact, they referred to it in chapter 10 and chapter 11. It was a very significant moment in the life of the argument of, of the Apostle John. And they, they, the Pharisees themselves, find them divided. Some were saying, he must be from God because of these works, these, these things he's done. And the other ones are saying, he's not. He's a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath, <laughs> which I find so amazing. They didn't, look at the, they didn't look at the miracle. They only tried to look at and judge the life, right? And they miss, they miss the sign. And at the end of that chapter of nine, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees hear Jesus talking about sight and they say, we're not blind either, are we? And Jesus says, because you say you see, you are blind. And he walks into chapter 10 and that chapter 10 is a chapter of the good shepherd. The good shepherd, his people, his sheep, they know his voice. And the thieves and the robbers, they come by the sheep pen but they don't, they don't go because they know the voice of the shepherd, right? They know his voice. It's interesting that after Jesus went through that discussion in chapter nine, and I believe it's verse 24, or I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 24. And he says this in verse 24 of chapter 10. He says, the Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I love that. Like, how, you're keeping us in suspense. If you're the Christ, tell us. Like, what else does Jesus need to do? In fact, Jesus' response to them in verse 25, Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Very powerful very powerful statement. It amazes me that they're still saying, well, just tell us plainly if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, I've told you, but you don't believe. And one of the things you find throughout this argumentation of the Gospel of John is belief and unbelief, the challenge to believe. And some don't believe. And Jesus said, they that don't believe, they're not of his sheep. They don't hear his voice. It's a very, very, very powerful section. In fact, if you look down in verse 37, 38, kind of towards the end of that conversation, in verse 37, he says, and if you do not believe the works of my Father, do not believe me. If you don't believe the works that I'm doing, just don't believe me. But really, in fact, verse 38, but if I do them, though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. In other words, you don't believe me, but at least believe the works, these things that I've done, 
and that that God has sent me. And then we walk into chapter 11. And it's, it's, it's like, how do, you, how do you get past the works of God? How do you get past these things Jesus did? You know, we can read books and challenge the scriptures and we can read all these different theology, but the bottom line is the, the, the works that Jesus did substantiate the message that he preached. That he gives sight, he gives life. That through him, life is sustained. Just as I eat to survive, so I need him to survive spiritually. Without him, there is no life. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. So when we walk into chapter 11, in the first, first two or three verses, we find out that Lazarus is sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are calling for Jesus to come. And Jesus hears that. In verses, I think it's verse four, uh, Jesus says it's not a sickness unto death, he tells his disciples. In verses five and following, we find that Jesus, in fact, verse five says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, if, if, you, if you're going through this chapter, one thing that's kind of a side note that would really be a really interesting or I think is a neat side note is just to kind of underline like where Jesus loved, where deeply moved, where Jesus wept. I think sometimes we push emotion away and we discount it. And here the son of God who knows life, he even wept in the midst of death. It's it's amazing, amazing, amazing sight. Anyway, he goes on in verses six through 10, Jesus stays two more days and then he says, let's go up to Judea. The disciples said, no, they're searching for you. They're gonna gonna take you, they're gonna arrest you. Don't go up there. And And they're making a strong argument. So you push down into verse 11 and then Jesus said, after that he had said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. Well, why can't someone there just wake, and wake Jesus, Lazarus up, right? I mean, he's just sleeping. In fact, that's kind of their response of verse 12. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. He'll, he'll wake up. Now Jesus, verse 13, had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So they kind of revealed. In verse 14, then Jesus therefore said to them, Lazarus is dead. I, now see, some people, I love that. I love this, don't hit around the bush, right? Just, it, he's dead. He's not alive. They didn't catch that. And then he says in verse 15, he says, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. It's interesting that when you talk about death, and especially in the ancient world, there was a university, universal fear of death. Because to be honest with you, death is the one enemy we can't conquer, isn't it? I mean, I can overcome a lot of things. I, I, I'm not as strong as I once was, but you know, I can, I can overcome a lot, of, a lot of different things. But you know what? There's one enemy I can't overcome, and it's death. I, never, I remember when my mom passed and the hospice nurse had came in and told me about how it was one of the most peaceful, peaceful passings she's ever been a part of. And I remember I said to the nurse, I said, because she doesn't, I said, my mom doesn't believe life just ended. And there was tremendous sadness and there was heartfelt, but there was, there was conquer 
conquering of death because of what Jesus did. And I know it's hard to tell this story, walk through the story without jumping to the end. But I think it's important for us to realize as we walk through this, that we see that, that Jesus is that resurrection. He is that life. And Lazarus, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus is glad that he wasn't there for the disciples' sake, for their own belief, that they would believe that God would be glorified. In fact, he goes on, verse 16, Thomas, uh, therefore, who is called Demas, said to his fellow disciples, let us, go, let us also go that we may die with him. I love that. It's kind of like Peter when he finally let Jesus wash his feet. He said, well, then wash all of me. No, the point is being made as I wash your feet. We sometimes want to jump in and, and go. And so Jesus doesn't even answer it, which I found kind of interesting. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, verse 19, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their teacher, their, their brother. Verse 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to, uh, to meet him, but Mary still sat in the house. Verse 21, Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. She understood the ability of what Jesus could do. And my brother wouldn't have died if he would have been here. Verse 22, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I know that your prayer, I know that your relationship with God, I know that, I know that whatever you ask, he will hear you. And I love Jesus' response in verse 23. And Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Your brother shall rise again. Your brother shall rise again. One of the things I began to realize as I was reading this, and I've read through this passage, I don't know how many times in my life, but I realized that as Jesus was standing there and Jesus was seeing what was taking place, he understood that Lazarus was dead. He felt the emotions of the moment. But at the same time, he knew that that wasn't the end. He knew that there was, there was life. You see, see in, when Jesus looks at at death, where when Jesus saw that, he only saw life because he is life. And those who believe in him have life. That he conquered this, this, this bondage of death. And he goes on and he, Martha's response says to him in verse 24 and said, I know that we will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus turns around and says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives believes in me shall never die. And he says, do you believe this? Jesus doesn't just give resurrection and life. He doesn't just give it. He is the resurrection and the life. It's such an important aspect to recognize and realize in our relationship with him. It's not that there's something that Jesus handed out, but that he is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. I find it so amazing that there would be no life without the resurrection. There would be none. But because of Jesus and what he did, and he conquered death, there's life. You know, I, I think sometimes we don't like to talk about our condition without Christ, right? 
But the reality is that we were enslaved to sin. We were chained by sin. In my, in my sinful nature, before I knew Christ, I knew nothing but sin. Even, in, even when I tried to do righteousness, it came out as unrighteousness. We don't think that. We value and we look at things and we say, well, this is better than this. So this, this, is, a, this is kind of a standard and this one isn't as good of a standard. So this one fails and this one's okay. Oh, and then this one's really good. And we value in standards. But really what we're not talking, we're not talking about standards like who's committed more or who's committed less. We're talking about condition. That, in, that without Christ, humanity is hopeless in its, in its direction. In fact, we stand in condemnation because of our, of our, our sin nature. We, we have no hope without Christ. You see, when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, it plunged humanity into iniquity. And, and, and the grips of iniquity was death. The sting of death, the sting of sin is death, that it holds us and it contains us in our, in our unrighteousness and there's no hope. And that's why Jesus said when, when, when he came into the world in chapter three of John, when he came into the world, he did not come to the world to condemn it, but that he might set it free, that he might redeem it, that he might, might deliver it. And in the next verse, in verse 18, I think it is, or verse 19, he says, and the world is already in condemnation. Because, because of iniquity that has plunged humanity into its grips of, of sin and death. And that's why we are afraid of death. Because we, we can't pass it. We can't conquer it. I can't overcome it. It doesn't take more knowledge. It doesn't take more strength or more resources or more ability. I'm, I'm in the clutches of sin. And so what Jesus is doing is Jesus came and through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's why in, in last week when he says, I lay my life down willingly, nobody grabbed Jesus and drug him to the cross and nailed him to the cross because he didn't want to. He willingly gave up his life because he knew that he can willingly raise it, raise it up again. And because he gave up his life, because he was able to raise it again, we too know that we have life. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, I'm alive because he's alive, because of his resurrection. In Romans, he calls it the first fruits of those who believe. He was the first one unto life. And because he lives, we live. I, one of my favorite verses is found in Colossians chapter 3 and 3 and verses three and four, and he says, and you have died, and he's talking about to that old nature, to that old man, to that, to that old white life, and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. In other words, he says that the life that you have, that life is hidden in Christ. Your life is in Christ, hidden in him. And then he goes on, when Christ, now listen to this, when Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. So that your life is not wrapped up in what you accomplish, but your life is wrapped up in what Christ accomplished and our faith in him. He is the resurrection and the life. So when Jesus says that Lazarus is going to rise again, when he's looking at Lazarus, he knows that he's already alive. Because it's based on Jesus and, his, and what he's done and his accomplished. And because we believe in him, 
That's why he says in verse, in verse 26, he says, and everyone who lives believes in me and shall never die. Do you believe this? Everyone who lives, faith and life go hand in hand. Just like in our Christian walk, I walk by faith, not by sight. Just as I came to Christ by faith, so I continue in Christ by faith. My victory in my life in, over iniquity isn't because of my great disciplines or my great knowledge or my great uh, abilities. It's by faith believing that God and by his spirit is working in me and changing me to be more and more like his son. And so everyone who believes in him shall live. And they will not die, verse 26. They, they shall never die. In other words, that death will never have eternal significance on them. I believe today as I stand here right now that both my mom and my dad are still alive. Right? Because of what Christ has done. And he goes on and he says in verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of, the, son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, verse 28, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. Verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come to the, into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Verse 31, the Jews then who were with him and were with her in, in, in the house and consoling her when they saw that Mary rose quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was gonna go to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32, then therefore when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died, would not have died. Same thing Martha said, right? They knew of Jesus' ability. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, underline this, he was deeply moved in, his, in spirit and troubled. Hey, Jesus knows he's about to call Lazarus out. He knows Lazarus isn't dead. Emotions are real. Sometimes we, we think we shouldn't experience them. Yeah, we need to deal with them. But they're real. And Jesus here showed great emotion. Verse 34, and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, underline it. Jesus wept. Jesus is about to raise this man from the dead. He knows that he's the resurrection and the life. And yet here he is weeping in the moment of, of, the, of the emotions and the sorrow of those around him. Verse 36, and so the Jews were saying, behold, how he loved him. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who, who was blind have kept this man also from dying? See it there? See it again? They're still looking at his works. They're still wondering about his work. Well, if he could open the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Yes. Verse, verse 38, underline it again here. Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was uh, lying against it. Verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of, of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Lazarus hadn't been dead for a couple hours or 30 minutes. He'd been dead four days. His body's been decaying, and there was now a stench. Verse 40, 
Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I don't have time. I would love, there's so many little things that I would love to spend a lot of time on. But I believe that many times in our walks with God, our unbelief keeps us from seeing his glory at work in our lives. Belief and unbelief are so crucial to our walks, not just to our faith and to, to, to our salvation, but also to our daily walks with him. It's a walk of faith. And I think we miss the work of God in our lives oftentimes because of unbelief. Verse 41, and so they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hearest me. Verse 42, and I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people standing around, I say it, that they may believe that thou didst send me. See, Jesus doesn't pray because he's wondering if God's gonna hear him or not. He's not praying hoping God hears him. Jesus said God always hears him, but the reason I'm praying is so that those standing around me right now will know that I've been sent by you, Father. Verse 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I've often, I hope, man, I just really hope God has like one of these RV rooms when we get to heaven. You know, and you go back to, I know I've said this before, but, but you just go back there and there's moments in history I want to see. This is one of them. I want to see. I mean, did Jesus walk up and just say it with all of his might? Or did Jesus, being the son of God, just simply say, Lazarus, come forth? Jesus didn't need to yell. He didn't need to, to, to use more of his body. He just simply said because he was God. Just like when he spoke creation into existence and he said, let there be light, and there was he now speaks to the dead man and he says, come forth. And if you look at the very next verse, verse 44, I believe it is, he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with cloth and Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Isn't that amazing? I mean, did he just come floating out of there? I mean, how did, how did it happen? I want to see it. I can't wait till that day. But this I know, that when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, the blood began to pump. The heart started pumping again. The brain waves started working again. The lungs began to fill up with air again. And there became life. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And the reality is that we understand that because of what Jesus did here in raising Lazarus from the dead. He demonstrates once and for all that he is life. And it's just as true as it is in salvation. It's true in our lives as well. It happens to us spiritually. In fact, if you, if you want to turn there, I'm just going to read in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses, and your sins, separated from God, no hope, the inability to even make yourself in any way righteous in the sight of God. In verse two, it went on and it says, in which you've formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he gives a real ugly picture of humanity. It really does. 
that we were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was no life. And then verse four, man, I get so excited over that. Verse four, it says, but, in contrast to death, but God. I always love when God steps in because when God steps in, he makes everything right. But God, and then he describes God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and here's, here's the, first, the first verb here, the first participle, God made us alive in Christ. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That God made us alive. We were dead and God made us alive. And then it goes on and says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Because Christ is our life. Our life is hidden in him. And Christ who is our life. When he is revealed, we will be revealed with him. In fact, he goes on, in order that in the ages to come, in verse seven of Ephesians chapter two, in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing richness of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that it, no one should boast. You see, we stand here and we stand because of what Christ has done. He's the resurrection and he's the life. And just as Lazarus brought forth and the blood began pumping and the brain waves began working and the air, the lungs began to fill with air, spiritually Christ did the same thing. He makes us alive. The old way had passed away and behold, we become a new creation in Christ Jesus. We are a new life because of him. And really, it really comes down to, folks, I've, as I've studied through this, this book, John doesn't make these, these great, even though I think there's tons of theology, he doesn't make all these great theological statements. But he simply talks to us and challenges us about our belief and our unbelief. And what is the crux of what he is talking about? The very works that Jesus did. That they testify that he was sin of God and that he and the Father are one. And that it is belief or unbelief. In fact, back in John chapter 11, when you look at verse 45, it says, Many therefore of the Jews who had come to Mary and, be, and, and beheld what he had done, believed in him. There were some that believed. And then it says in verse 46, But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. It's interesting, if you look down, if you went down to I guess, verse 53, there we see that they're beginning to seek to kill Jesus. If you look over in chapter 12, in verse 10, they're seeking to kill Lazarus. Here Jesus raised the dead and they just wanna kill it. Why? Because of unbelief. They were worried about the, the Roman government coming in and removing them if there was, if there was this uprising. And it was because of unbelief. They, they would lose their, their power, they would lose their resources and their prestige. And it's only belief that overcomes that. And so the same thing I would ask as is, is, is John did through this book, where are you at? Do you believe? Or is it unbelief? I don't know if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal savior. Today's the day of salvation. Now is the time. It's belief. 
Maybe you're a believer and you've been struggling and unbelief has kind of gripped your heart, caused you to go in a different way. And to be honest with you, the only way to correct the path is belief, taking time to get out and see the works of God, spend time in the book and see how mighty our God is. And this same God interjects into our lives. So do you believe or unbelief? Let's pray. Father God, I just come before you. And God, I lift up to you Everyone that's here this morning, these are your people, Father. They're not mine. They're not the church. They're not, they're your people. And so, God, I ask and I beseech you that your spirit would move among your people. Father, there are some here this morning, maybe they don't know Christ and they haven't received Christ in their life. And today's the day of salvation. I pray, Father, that, you know, I'll be at the back of the building and maybe they just, you would lead them, your spirit would move them to, to come talk to me that they may hear of the good news of salvation. Or maybe they'd ask that brother that they came with or that sister that they came with or that believer that they they know about how they came to Christ, that they would learn of the good news, that today, Father, would be a day where they would trust once and for all in finality of what Jesus has done for them and the demonstration of his love towards them. Father, some are here this morning, they're they're believers in Christ, maybe been walking a long time, and Father, just, just maybe sickness coming into the home or the, the relationships of the home or the busyness of life or different things that have, that have been coming and, and just hitting them. And maybe some of them are, have grown tired and, and unbelief is, is just waning. May you, Father, your spirit encourage them and strengthen them. For God, you are our refuge and our strength, a very present help in the times of trouble. And Father, we would, your spirit would remind them of the truths of your word And Father, may they regain their confidence of hope in the promises that you've given us through your word. But Father, whatever you do, they're your people. Just speak to us, God, and may your spirit move freely. In Jesus' name.